On the latest into music, Frankie Sunswept talks library cards, open mics, and the power of being a student. I've learned more being a music teacher than anything at this point. That's Into Music, a new podcast from KMUW. You can find it at KMUW.org, on your KMUW app, and you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Brian Turner, and my book is called My Life as a Foreign Country. Brian Turner is wrapping up his stint this week as visiting author at Wichita State University. Turner is best known as a poet, but I spoke with him about his book, My Life as a Foreign Country, a memoir about war. From KMUW Studios, part of the NPR Podcast Network, this is Marginalia. I'm Beth Golay, and here's my conversation with Brian Turner. So this is a memoir but it's not like any memoir I've ever read before. <laughs> Could you give our listeners a description of my life as a foreign country? Yeah, you know, maybe I could start by describing what it's not, in a way. Like, I could have written, I was a soldier in the Iraq War, and I could have written about my experience there, starting out with uh, something like at 0800 or 0600, it should probably be 0300 or something. 0300, we locked and loaded and crossed the, the border from Kuwait into Iraq, and then, and then, and then, and then. And it's sort of a very standard sort of soldier's biography or memoir kind of approach. Um, but this is not that. This is a very fragmented, I think there's about 136 sections. And uh, it's layered. It's a braided narrative. So the question that propelled me into the book was, um, why did you join the Army? Which is, seems like a very simple question. But I thought about myself standing on the tarmac late, late at night, with a weapon in my hands and a large rucksack on my back with a long line of other soldiers about to board a plane to go to Iraq and go to combat. And I thought, how, do I, how does he answer that question? Does he say, like I had often told people, um, well, I come from a long line of military tradition in my family, which I, I've said that to people and I've seen them sort of agree with that and take it as if that was an actual answer, but what does that mean when I'm standing on tarmac? I, that feels like I'm hoisting all my responsibilities off on the people before me, like it's their fault. I, I've decided to do something or something. It's their responsibility. But I had chosen to do this, and I think uh, deep down it connects to when I was seven years old and I would see the veterans of my family out front drinking beer, smoking cigarettes in a kind of private circle talking about their experiences and kind of wanting to be in, in that conversation. And that's that's probably closer to the reason why I joined the military. And that's some of the stuff I discover inside the book. So it's layered. It talks about my time in Iraq, but it also goes back generationally to think, what does it mean to come from a military tradition? So you've mentioned Iraq. You've mentioned the mm -hmm. Army. Can you tell me about your service? When and where did you serve exactly? Oh, sure. I joined in uh, 1998 and got out uh, very early in 2005. I was in Bosnia from 1999 to 2000 for just under seven months, I believe. And then I was uh, deployed to Iraq with the 2nd Infantry Division from um, 2003 to 2004. So how did this memoir, and I, I'm kind of using air quotes here, how did this memoir come together? And I was wondering as I read it if it was pure memory or if you wrote it as it happened. I, I did see you know, in the second half of the book, a mention of a, a Xeroxed journal. But I'm still curious about the process. Sure. Um, I didn't know I was writing the memoir. Uh, I, was, I started, 
I got a very strange award. I got a, it's called the Amy Lowell Traveling Fellowship for poets, and it's uh, it's amazing. I caught the Bad Parent Award, and basically, uh, poet Amy Lowell died in the 1920s, I believe, and left behind uh, an inheritance with which uh, is designated for an American poet every year to go out abroad. So she said, from Canada down to uh, Central America was off limits. So go anywhere else in the world. Like, what, the reason I call it the Bad Parent Awards, like, here's some money, get out of the house. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and you have to leave North America or, and Central America um, for a year, and then you come back. And so I wrote about that in the New York Times. It was an online you know, piece that I did. And I was sort of just thinking aloud on the page you know, what I might do, ride camels in this place, go do this thing. And there was an editor who contacted me who was interested in, in what I might do, and, and also suggested that I might consider using a, a Japanese form called the haibun, um, which is a started by Basho in the 1600s, which has a, a first part is a pr- block of prose, usually a travelogue or diary entry, and the second part is a haiku, sort of crystallization of experience, and beautiful form. I was intrigued by it, and, um, and I did. I ended up traveling all over the place. My wife had a half-year sabbatical, so we traveled together. And uh, we went to many countries during that time. And I, I used the haibun as a form to write about where I was at. And I gathered about 90 pages of this material and then sent it to him. And bless him, because he rolled up his sleeves and I rolled up my sleeves. And we uh, basically we had all these fragments. But how did they congeal? How did they come together? And we cut out all the fat. Things just didn't weren't compelling or whatnot. Threw those out very quickly. What was left were several sort of um, constellations or piles, maybe you might. So several fragments that might have been about me thinking about my time in, in the military. Uh, another one that might have been about my my father and my grandfather, for example, in their time. And then also while we were traveling, even in very peaceful places, I could see the um, the inheritance of war sort of woven into the into the fabric of the, of the of a city, you know, like maybe the name of a cafe in Portugal, like the Angola Cafe for example. And so I wrote pieces like that. So there were, they were disparate, but there was a kind of connection. And then together we, f- we formed arcs within each of these groupings and then wove the three or four different strands together to create a short essay, 21 pages, called My Life as a Foreign Country. So he published that in the Virginia Quarterly Review. And when I had that essay, I realized I didn't know what book it was going to be in, but I knew this was a doorway into a book. And so I had to discover the, the the fuller book from there. But the braided essay is the, the way in, because I could use fragments, but then find a way to thread them together. I was going to ask about that, because the book is divided in a couple of different ways. You have the numbered segments, and you also have the, the sections that are divided by gray pages in the mm-hmm. in the printed copy. The very first braided essay that you wrote, how d- does it differ than what was expanded in the book? Did you did things get moved around? How did you decide what went where? Oh yeah, I, I am such a knucklehead. <laughs> I could have done, probably could have been so much more economical with time and thinking, but I thought when we pitched it with, through my agent to a publisher, uh, what I said was I, I wanted to do um, nine essays. I wasn't thinking of doing a braided essay the whole way. I already have this braided essay. And I thought, well, I'll cycle through these experiences that I've had. But each essay will try a very different form. I'll have a, one that's all haibun, like I described before, um, one that's all uh, like a three-act play, et cetera, et cetera. Very different approaches. 
And I wrote that book. They, they accepted it some, for some reason. <laughs> I wrote the book, and it, it was just a hot mess. It was incomprehensible. I think four people in America would be like, this is genius. You know? <laughs> but I was not one of them. <laughs> but thankfully and oddly, I never mentioned how that initial essay, My Life as a Foreign Country, was formed and, and, and put together. But the new editor I was working with at the press, uh, Jonathan Cape, which is part of Penguin Random House in the U.K., um, he rolled up his sleeves, and we basically did the same thing with this 350-page thing or whatever it was. And we took out all the fat, put all the fragments into bigger piles, started making internal arcs, and then threading the different narratives or, or, or you know, sort of meditations together and created a book-length uh, braided narrative. But you're right, it's also now complicated by these sort of section breaks. And this other framing device, which uh, if, if I sort of – if we step back from what I've been talking about. On the side, for several years, I've been trying to write a novel about a, a, a ghost, a dead soldier, American soldier in Iraq, who's sort of marooned there and keeps trying to get home but can't seem to get home. And that book was not working. <laughs> it never has worked so far. It's not a bad idea, but it just hasn't worked. And uh, then I realized that I am, that's kind of like part of me stayed in Iraq and part of me came home. And part of the war came home with me as well in, in the form of memory and the body's memory, that kind of thing. Um, so I, I thought, why don't I try putting this dead Sergeant Turner inside this book, you know, as a the, – the, there's a sort of fragmentation, I think, of, of the self when we have an experience that's separate from ourselves. So like childhood, for example. We all have had a childhood. But you get older, and the older you get, the further you are separated from your own childhood. But you can re-enter those memories and visit them. So that's kind of the thinking process with this dead Sergeant Turner. And so the book oddly starts with that. Uh, there's a drone aircraft that's sort of hovering over uh, me. And so there's this doubling of consciousness in a way, and which is a, a key thing to literary work now, contemporary work in, in our time of, uh, in the memoir process is having a doubling of, of consciousness. But mine is like very overt. I make it mechanized and ghostly. This memoir not only looks at your experience in the war, but it also mm. looks at the experiences of your family. You wrote about your time in Iraq, but you also explored the wars of your elders. You know, the, the juxtaposition of the kamikaze pilot with the present-day suicide bomber was powerful, not only because of their similar missions, but but also because of the perspective you chose to tell their stories. How do you decide whose story you will tell in each of the sections? I wish I could go back to the desk and ask my f former self. That's a, good, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great question. I think um, I just I follow curiosity and, and where it goes. I was in Japan for three months. And I had a fellowship there, and I went there specifically to study a country that had had previously had a very well-developed and very um, strong um, sort of martial code and, and the Bushido and this, you know, up until World War II. And, and there's a break in World War II where the country develops a, a very strong sort of a peace-focused lens. And... Um, yeah, so when I went there, I just I, I was I didn't know what I would find. So I knew that I'd end up writing things that would go into this book because I was writing it at the time. But I, 
you know, it's curiosity leads us and then we find things, you know. So I had access to a, a, a wonderful library in Tokyo and there was an amazing research librarian that, that I could work with, it would help me. And so I went traveling all over Japan while I, I gave this just ridiculous list of, of possibilities that I thought she might be able to look into. And I came back with, and she had this stack of, of uh, the education of Brian, you know, basically <laughs> with a stack of, <laughs> of books and articles and things. And like I'd asked her one question, like I said, were there any former Japanese baseball players pre-World War II who became kamikaze pilots? And she'd happened to find a couple, I believe, things like that. So they were pretty obscure questions. And uh, and I learned a, a lot while I was there. Though I should say, as with many things, I went there with that sort of intention, and I did some of that work. But what I became more fascinated by was um, more of the Zen gardens and the dry gardening culture that's uh, historical in Japan. Um, and the samurai did that too. So they ha- would have places uh, that they lived in, and they would the house sometimes would be. Uh, facing in a way so when on moonlit nights the moonlight would fall in the basically in the backyard off of a patio for example or a sliding enclosure and they could open the enclosure and they would put uh, white sand outside and they would have gestures to oceans and islands that would then talk mythologically to storytelling so it's a a kind of storytelling in gardening but at the same time the moonlight would reflect off the, the white sand and illuminate the room so they could stay up later without using oil that kind of thing I, whatever that is, you know, like I didn't know that I would be studying that too, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how the book kind of got made. It seems haphazard, but I, I think part of, for at least for me, writing is um, just following curiosity into the unknown and being surprised and learning about the world. And then if I, I figure if I'm surprised, then maybe if I share it with someone else, they might be too. You know, there were mentions in the book, and these are quotes. When I come home from my own war, we will talk about these things. Or, he was a man of historical silence. And this was talking about your grandfather, who shared a story with you that he hadn't told anyone in 65 years. And then later, there was the entirety of Section 134. Maybe it isn't that it's so difficult coming home, but that home isn't a big enough space for all that I must bring to it. America, vast and laid out from one ocean to another, is not a large enough space to contain the war each soldier brings home. And even if it could, it doesn't want to. We hear about veterans who are never able to talk about their experiences when they come home. But are conversations with other veterans helpful? Like you talked about being able to talk, to join your family, to join that group of elders when they were talking about their war experiences. Is that helpful? Um, sometimes yes, and sometimes maybe yes in a different way. I don't know. Um, for example, my grandfather did say what I quote in there, but I, I, you know, there's a, there's a moment, I think I was about eight or nine years old, maybe seven, I'm not sure, I was young, and we were in the kitchen of his house, and, and I'd heard stories, not from him, but from others about how, he was a Marine in the Pacific in World War II in the, in the infantry. I had been told that he had killed a Japanese officer with a machete in the jungle. And, um, and I knew the machete was in the house. So I was in the kitchen, and he walked in one day, and there was no one else around. And it was just the two of us. And he didn't say a word, and I didn't say a word the entire time. But he had the machete in his hands, and he sort of, there was like a sacred moment. He sort of held it in both hands and then sort of offered it to me to hold. And then I put my hands out and held the machete, and then like 
looked at him, and there was this moment between us, and then I gave him the machete back, and then he took it back and kept it wherever he put it. You know, that's part of why I joined the military, too. Whatever happened in that moment is an unspoken thing, but there was something there that's profound to me that I'm still trying to figure out what he was trying to teach me or say, you know. And, you know, the, the conversations um, ex- extend outside of the those with military experience. So I've spent the last five years, I've been driving all over the country, excluding the, um, well, I did during the the height of the pandemic, too. I went and got my mother from California and drove her out to move next door to me in, in Florida. But, uh, you know, I've driven to California several several times, me and my dog. She's right here in the studio with us. And, <laughs> and you know, I drove up to, to California and then up to Montana. And then I actually drove years ago, I, I think around 2018, I drove, I was trying to go to the small towns, not any big towns. And Wichita, in fact, was the biggest town that I went to. I went diagonally from Montana down to Florida. And I stopped here at the Vagabond Cafe, and I asked questions of people that I've been asking for years now over the, over the, some of them being things like, who works harder, people here or people like in big cities on the coast and stuff, you know. And here in Wichita, was the only time I heard anybody say, that, this is no joke, the only time somebody said something other than that people work harder here than they do there. In Wichita, there was a biker, there was a biker gang that was outside there, and there was this big biker guy who said, uh, he said, well, what are you talking about, the longshoremen or something, like in Long Island or something? You know, he, I was like, okay, now we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, the other questions I asked, like after the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan, and it seemed like historians were probably rushing to finish the, the history books on Iraq and Afghanistan, that they were done. These wars are done, right? I started asking people all over, and I've yet to get an answer, but the question is, um, what did we learn from all that? And it's a vast silence. I don't know if this country even even thinks about that. What did we learn? Just over, you know. And I'm, I, you know, I know there are individuals, of course, who think about this deeply. But it seems like it's hard for a lot of people to answer that question. Like, did did we learn something from it? And so that's probably something I probably I, I'll have to write about at some point too. Have you heard from veterans who have read your book? Yeah. Yeah, um, I over the over the years, um, there's been a lot of conversations. From I, I remember, uh, well, a lot of them will, will come to readings that I'll do, and then I'll also be contacted through my publishers or agents, and they'll they'll forward emails on to me, and uh, and then through other means and stuff. But yeah, it's the interesting thing to me is that when I write, I try to write very detailed and very specifically. And yet the specific somehow sometimes resonates with someone else's very signature experience that's very different from mine. We can be in different wars, different like Iraq and Afghanistan were such different spaces and places. And, and then Vietnam, and, and you can just go backwards uh, with different experiences in, in military, in the uniform even, for those who maybe didn't see combat, you know. And there's just a lot of echoes of... of uh, of experience that it's hard sometimes, especially like the humor um, is hard to put on the page. And sometimes I can I can share an experience that happened to me in uniform that was funny with another veteran. And this is this is the the one area I think humor that is really hard to transcend and cross over to, into the civilian world. Those who haven't served. 
but sometimes we'll be in tears laughing about these like stupid things that happen in, in, when, when we're in the uniform. But uh, then, you, then I say it to someone who hasn't been in uniform, and it's just flat, just the flattest joke. You, <laughs> it's just like, you know, or they just sort of humor you with uh, a little chuckle or something, but it's, it's not reaching. Yeah. I've got to figure that out. That's, that's something <laughs> for you. Yeah. I'm curious about the, the mm. thirst for water throughout. Can you explain oh. that to me? I read a book of uh, women poets going back, way, way back. And one of them, she was, uh, she was uh, Jawahiri, I believe, was her the religion or spiritual practice that, that her, her people are part of. And it crosses um, over the time when Islam developed and, and Muhammad was alive. And she knew Muhammad. When, and Muhammad had a large tent. If you ever get to go to Istanbul and go into the archaeological museum, you can see some of the artifacts from, from his tent where he would— entertain, you know, he's the leader of a people. So there, it's a large tent and probably many tents, I imagine. <laughs> but uh, uh, she would come in sometimes to entertain with poems because she, she was a poet. And she had poems mostly of revenge and, and about battle and honor and things like that. Her brothers were had been warriors and that kind of thing. And from my understanding, the Jawahiris, I hope I get this right, but the Jawahiris believe that when someone died an, an unnatural death, their owl spirit would would leave their bodies and perch um, on their gravestones if they died an unnatural death, right? They would be on their gravestones and call out for water, which was a way of calling out for revenge, right? But if they died a natural death, then they would, their owl spirit would reside in the family home for like 100 years, I believe, and then go on to wherever they, they go. And so that just really rung through with me. And they, so that was a... It's very interesting. For me, it's just a fascinating thing. And, and I think when I was writing part of the book, I was down in East Texas, in uh, Marfa, Texas. And there, was a, there were two uh, great owls there that I think live somewhere in the courthouse in the center of the town. But there was a, a big tree between uh, near my, the place where I was staying. And I like to write late, late at night. So it was probably like 3 a.m. Sometimes they would come in and there would be, be that big, ooh, I can't do it, but... Ooh, I, you know, yeah, I can't get that low. I got to get Benjamin Percy. I don't know if you've ever heard him. <laughs> yes, I have. Yeah, you got to get him in here. But there's that voice. It's that low, low octave that gets right in your in your body, and you could feel the owl, you know, uh, sounding through your body, and uh, it's, it's mystical and stuff. So those two combined, I think, did that. Uh, interestingly, um, when my best friend he passed away from cancer in 2012, and before this book came out. And I remember calling up one one time, and he said, uh, we were just talking for a bit, and he had about a month to live at this point. And he said, um, he said, you don't even know how good a glass of water tastes, you know. And uh, and of course he's right, you know. Um, he knows so much better, more than I do, yeah. So, so there's different layers to that when it shows up in the work. Yeah. Yeah. You dedicated this book to him. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite part of the book that you like to read? Um, this, this passage might be, be all right. <clears throat> of course, the rifle reports, the cannon fire, the shells bursting. The world and its patience takes them all under, by sand, by wind, by erosion, by the steady labor of ruin. The creeper vine hooks its bright tendrils and pulls history down into the earth. The soldiers march on, though, generation by generation, one war to another, 
through mud and rain and blistering sun. They practice the principles of patrolling. They lock and load their weapons. They feel the sickness in their stomachs, and some of them feel the dread in their chests as they cross the line of departure, or worse still, they feel nothing at all. Boredom, perhaps, routine, moving to contact, on radio silence, communicating with hand signals, gestures, a movement of the head, a look of recognition in the eye. The creeper vine hooks around their ankles and calves with its green embrace. The creeper vine takes them all under, the wind at their backs pushing them into the quiet spaces of history, where names and lives and moments and words and hopes and all manner of human beings are pulled down. Sand and water and the hard weight of what they've done eventually turning them to stone. So we're talking about this book 10 years after it was published and Mm. more than 20 years after you lived the experience. Does it hold up for you? Do the memories hold up for you? Um... Yeah, yeah, I can um I could close my eyes and I can be in a room of a, a building that's um like almost instantaneous. I can be I can be sitting on a crate on the second floor of a a, a windowless f- framed window uh overlooking this vacant house that's under construction in Mosul, the northern part of Iraq, which might be the building might be gone now after ISIS and the fighting that they had there because the city was demolished in so many ways. But when I was there, I would sit there, and we were overwatching, waiting for mortars. We were listening for mortars being launched against our um, bases or anything. And we would call in the distance and direction that we thought it came from so they could triangulate and figure out where the firing points were from. So while I'm sitting there, it's hot. It's summer. It's August, July, something like that. And across the street, there's a butcher shop. There's an awning, a yellow and white awning with a little flare underneath it. And... um, there's a bucket sitting on the sidewalk with water in it, and there's a hook hanging down. And a, and a vehicle pulls up, this car, guy gets out, the butcher comes out talking with him, they open the trunk, and there's a newspaper-lined trunk, and he pulls out the like the whole leg, the shank and everything, the leg of a cow, and hoists up on his shoulder, you know, sort of walks it over, and then hooks it on that hook, so this leg is just kind of hanging there over the street, over the sidewalk. And then the butcher takes a rag that's inside that that uh, five-gallon paint bucket with water and soaks it and then just starts wiping down the thing. And it just, uh, like, I can I can just visit moments like that you know, instantaneously. That isn't to say that memory doesn't, you know, start changing. And, and, you know, that's one of the things about writing a memoir that helps to recognize, like, wait a minute, do I remember it right, you know? So I think I can see that very clearly. I'm pretty sure that's, you know, um, even on that same block, I remember we went out doing a patrol one time, uh, or just a squad, and um, I, we were walking by, uh, there was a plate glass window of a, of a barber shop, and as we were walking by, I just, I was joking, I didn't mean it in any way serious, I was like, I, I need a haircut, and my squad leader looked at me and said, like, you want to get a haircut? I was like, uh, sure, and and so they stood guard outside on the street, which is just ridiculous. And then I went inside and got a haircut. And there was uh, there was a, some type of religious scholar, I believe, up on a television talking about the, the Quran. And there was a long uh, mirror that was about 30 feet long or so in front of us so I could see behind me and everything. And there was the barber sat me in the chair and I put my carbine up against the counter. And then he had a razor at my throat. And I just remember thinking very quickly, like, like, where does this guy stand with us, you know? And how does he feel about me here? 
And uh, there had been another gentleman that was before me, but he, he quickly said, no, no, you go, you know. And, um, and I thought, well, I do have a carbine in my hand. This is, you know. But actually what I found out, he started talking. He was a professor from the university. And we just had a conversation while the barber um, cut my hair. And he was a very fascinating person. But mem- I have those memories. But then, like, I was trying to write a, a section of the book at one point, and I remember uh, there had been mortars launched on this one particular attack that was really, um, uh, there was a series of them, but there was one attack that was very significant. I think we had, like, 30 or 33 mortars come in on us over a very short period of time. So it was a full-on attack, you know. And um, up, up above the building that we were in, uh, there was a machine gun, and I could hear it firing. And then so I... I emailed one of the guys on my, or Facebook messaged them or something, one of the guys in my squad or platoon, and said, was so-and-so up there? And, you know, when, does he have the recording? Because I knew he did some recordings. And they're like, no, he was already in helicopter school by that time. But in my mind, he was up there, and I still have yet to be able to, t- to remove him from that moment because that's my memory, you know. But I know the other person's right. <laughs> so it's like, how do you live with this uh, false word? And this is 20 years, but what happens 30, 40, you know, it's just... Yeah, and and as a writer, yeah, I want to get it right, but I also have to recognize what am I living with, what is my perception of it, and then what's the real one. And that's one of the hallmarks of contemporary memoir writing is to show those fractures in memory where, and to make them plain on the page so we can see uh, the, the troubling um, erasure and changing of memory, you know. So talk to me about what you're doing, what you've been doing at Wichita State. You're, you're wrapping up your uh, time yeah. as visiting author. I mean, what does that entail? Uh, a lot of wonderful conversations, really. So, um, what basically I'm tasked with uh, a terrible thing. That's, well, I'm joking, I'm being sarcastic. So I, I sit down and I talk with these incredible people about their their journey as writers and creative thinkers, and see what is it they're working on, what is it they're hoping to do, and then my job is to try to be as helpful and supportive as I can towards that. So, you know, the MFA program and also some undergraduates uh, that are writing. I've been working with them over this past month and. Every week I meet with each of them uh, individually for an hour at a time. And, um, and I've been reading their work and commenting and talking about it. And uh, we've been, we had some pizza last night at one of the pizza places here in town. And it was so cold because I had my dog with me, so we had to be out in the back. So, but they were, they were troopers. You know, they were out there in the cold. And some of them had worn shorts that day. I don't know what they were thinking. <laughs> so they have it jackets on and shorts. Degrees, and I it's, believe. it's true. It's fair <laughs> enough, you know. But we're back there. I got one of those ginormous pizzas. Do you know that place? It's, uh, it's across from the Vagabond, you, the pizza place right across oh, there Picasso's? on Douglas, I think. Yeah, Picasso's. And yeah. we were in the back. They, they were great. They, you know, they carved it up in the squares, and we were just, you know, there were four of us. I thought there were going to be more. I think there was five of us, actually. But um, uh, we, uh, that pizza didn't last too <laughs> many. <laughs> so, but things like that. And um, Thursday night, I'll be doing a reading. And I did a, a poetry reading a couple weeks ago. And, so I'm doing. I did poetry before, and then this next reading, I'll do uh, nonfiction stuff. So I'll be focusing on the book we've been talking about, and as well as some new writing I've been doing that's in nonfiction, creative nonfiction. Yeah. We've talked about a lot. Is there anything you'd like to talk about that I haven't asked? Um, well, one thing I would say is that there's a thriving literary community here in Wichita. Uh, you know, at the, the, the college is doing some great stuff. They've got a, a wonderful, really warm community and with some, some great teachers and faculty. And uh, the, the bookstores here in town, uh, I think combined with that, creates a, a really wonderful space for writers. I, you know, I, I can imagine myself 
30 years back, um, not knowing where I was headed and, and enjoying writing and want, wondering if I could maybe become a writer, and this would be a good space to do it, you know. There's um, It feels like a very real, welcoming, um, relaxed community in town, you know, and it's uh, some cities, uh, it doesn't seem like you can talk to strangers too much, but this is a city where you can kind of talk sometimes with, with people you've never met and, and people are open to talk. Like, like I live in Orlando and you might get some sideways glances if you try <laughs> starting a conversation with somebody you don't know, but it's not the same here. I don't know if that makes sense, but I hope, uh, yeah. Well, we don't work as hard as people on the coast. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> well, the book is My Life as a Foreign Country. Brian Turner and Danny, thank you so much for joining us Thank today. you. It's been a pleasure. That was Brian Turner, author of the book, My Life as a Foreign Country, which was published by Norton. Marginalia was produced at KMUW Wichita and is part of the NPR Podcast Network. Our engineers are Mark Stadster and Torin Anderson. Our editors are Luann Stevens and Haley Krausen. Our producers are Haley Krausen and Katie Lanning, and our marketing coordinator is Carly Cooper. This is Marginalia, and for KMUW, I'm Beth Golay. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts.